morning, everyone. Do um, do turn to one Timothy, if you uh, if you would. But before we before we get to the passage uh, we're going to look at this morning, um, as I've been preparing, looking at the the big picture of of one Timothy, um, you you might know that the issues that Timothy is facing, Timothy the pastor in Ephesus, uh, Paul writes to him because there's some pressing issues. Uh, probably top of the list is false teaching. 1 Timothy chapter 1, uh, verse 3, the first thing Paul gets into, he says, As I urged you when I went to Macedonia, stay there in Ephesus, so that you may command certain people not to teach false doctrines any longer, or devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies. Such things promote controversial speculations rather than advancing God's work, which is by faith. People are teaching false doctrines, so that's one of the things Timothy is, is to do. His role is going to be to prevent this spread of false, false doctrine. Uh, chapter, chapter 4, the Spirit clearly says that in later times, some will abandon the faith and follow deceiving spirits and things taught by demons. Again, false teaching is going to be devastating in Ephesus and presumably other places where the gospel is preached. And so one of the reasons Paul's writing to Timothy is to help him know what do you do when false doctrine, false teaching is around and is getting into the church and is a threat. And another issue in Timothy, maybe less prominent, but I think given what we know of all of Paul's life and ministry, is the great task of getting the gospel out. And we get that in places in Timothy, you know, particularly maybe chapter chapter 2, um, yeah, Paul says, I urge then that petitions, prayers, intercessions, this is 2 verse 1, thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and those in authority, that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. Why? Well, this is good and pleases God our Saviour, who wants all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. For there's one God, one mediator between God and mankind, the man Christ Jesus. One of the issues, well, there's false teaching, but there's also there's a gospel task. The gospel needs to get out across the Mediterranean. Ephesus being one of the cities is one of the places the gospel could go from and, and to the world. And I guess in many senses, we experience those same pressures, but also challenges and opportunities today. Denominations departing from biblical teaching. We just only need to trace the last few years and we just start to think it just feels that, that the Bible is being abandoned biblical standards are being cast aside by so many denominations and churches what do we do maybe we just feel very small we're aware there's this gospel task to to reach the nations but we think reach the nations i'm struggling to reach my community we're so small in a community that's so big it seems the task is massive just look at maps of the country. There's huge areas in this Christian nation that once was, huge areas that it is that are far from gospel witness. Very often, it's, as has been said, it's often deprived areas, maybe coastal towns, maybe other places where it feels that actually just there is so little gospel light, the task seems huge. Add to that the pressures churches face, we know churches like this, where actually teach what the Bible says and you're going to struggle to rent a building. 
Teach what the Bible says and the school doesn't want you meeting there anymore. And it seems that the churches that compromise, they might be the ones that are going to advance, they're going to grow, they're going to flourish. Of course, it's not all negative. Please don't hear me saying that. But I think probably there are aspects of what Timothy is wrestling with in Ephesus. False teaching, but also this huge need to get the gospel out that I think we can recognise, and maybe you recognise in your context. And the question is, well, what, what do we do about it? And of course, the passage we're looking at today is only one part of the letter. It's not, it's not all there is to say. But I'll confess, I lo- it's one of those lovely moments in preparation where it surprised me. I love those moments. It shows that my thinking is maybe not in line with the Bible's teaching. Where I'm surprised. I go, oh, I wouldn't have thought that. Okay, maybe I need to change my thinking a bit. In the face of false teaching, in the face of urgent gospel need, actually... Paul urges Timothy to personal godliness. As you read through 1 Timothy, every single chapter mentions godliness, often many times. Actually, almost, for Paul, godliness and the faith and the gospel are are synonyms. Chapter 3, verse 16, he does a little gospel summary. Um, but actually describes it as the mystery of godliness. NIV, the mystery from which true godliness springs. But the mystery of godliness is the same as the mystery of the faith, is the same as the mystery of the gospel. For Paul, it's not like we've got the salvation and the faith, and then godliness is some other thing. No, for Paul, they're bound together. Godliness the gospel, they go hand in hand. Gospel teaching leads to gospel living. Salvation and godliness are not different things. And so that's the context when we come to our passage today, 1 Timothy 4, verses 11 to 14. Paul writing to Timothy, a church pastor, but I think there's there's implications here for all who minister in different contexts, whether it be in kind of formal roles, informal roles, um, sort of more upfront teaching roles, more one-to-one... There's a whole range of things that I think we can learn from Paul's words to Timothy. I think we can hear them to to ourselves as we seek to minister in the face of false teaching and an urgent gospel need. And so Paul says, 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 11. Command and teach these things. By the way, I think think that these things is probably the whole letter. I think it's at least... What's come before? I think it's probably at least the gospel. Paul tends to use these things quite a lot in 1 Timothy. I think it's probably this whole kind of body of teaching. In other words, be about teaching the gospel and its implications. Don't let anyone look down on you because you're young. Ian. But set an example for the believers in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith and in purity. Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of scripture, to preaching and to teaching. Do not neglect your gift which was given you through prophecy when the body of elders laid their hands on you. It's actually quite similar in some ways to the qualifications for elders type sections where you get first character and only then job description. Or actually, I mean, read the qualifications for elders. There's very little in the way of job description. Most of it is character. And so here... Timothy will be called to devote himself to public reading, teaching, preaching, etc. 
but first again is is character is is godliness and so particularly it's the last session uh, of the week and kind of very much following in the same theme of that christ-like attitude i thought we'd just spend a bit of time with little probably little pauses to reflect on just these five areas that paul thinks timothy needs to pay attention to and as i've been preparing the thing i've noticed is of course shouldn't be a surprise whatever timothy is urged to do is nothing less than christ-like character Every one of these areas is an area we can see exemplified in Jesus. And so I thought it would be good as we, as we do this to, hit, to sort of hit, hear, hear this with Jesus in our minds as well. So we can ponder his character and how we're to grow, grow into it. So we're going to think of these five. Speech, conduct, love, faith and purity. And it's interesting, the first is speech. Set an example for the believers in speech. Those who minister are to be careful with their words. I guess that's no surprise if, if part of what we do when we minister is, is teach the word. But I, think it's, I think it's bigger than that. Words have power, don't they? I mean, God's words have ultimate power. God speaks, let there be light, and there was light. But our words have power. There's that phrase, isn't there? Sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. Um, that you know, kind of. I mean, I imagine if you if you sang that in a playground, you'd just get beaten up even more. But anyway, <laughs> but it's just not true, is it? Sticks and stones break my bones. Words, no, no. Words can often hurt far deeper. Words have power. When we speak, that can profoundly brighten someone's day. That can ruin someone's day. Our words have immense power. Actually, James, of course, will say that our tongue is like, a, is like a rudder. It steers the whole ship. In other words, what we say, they're not just words. Actually, as we speak, we are setting a direction for our life. You, you start to refer to someone in a negative way. You start to talk, talk down about someone behind their back. That's going to affect how you treat that person. That's going to affect the sort of person you become. Our words don't just reflect our heart, but they also shape our heart. And I think it's really interesting that Timothy is told to pay attention to his words. As someone who speaks a lot, both for my job, but also just I like the sound of my own voice. That's a, that's a really challenging but helpful word. To pay attention to our speech. Am I careless with words? Both in how I speak to people, but also how I speak about people when they're not there. And I was I was struck by, by Jesus in this. I've been doing some work in Isaiah um, recently. And you get this, I think it's the third servant song, Isaiah 50 verse 4, where... The servant, who we know to be Jesus, is speaking. He describes his own word ministry like this. Isaiah 50 verse 4. The sovereign Lord has given me a well-instructed tongue to know the word that sustains the weary. How does Jesus speak to his people? With a word that sustains the weary. It's a well-instructed tongue. The right words, the careful words, chosen words that will 
instruct and build up and encourage the weary. Then if you've ever had that experience where you get kind of, you get summoned to a meeting. I remember once I got an email from my boss saying that a number of years ago saying, um, hi Matt, um, I, I just need a word of you. I wonder if you've got any time on Monday morning. This was like 5 p.m. on Friday. So I was like, I spent all weekend thinking, what have I done? What's going to be said? And I was just thinking, what, you know, the boss wants a word. What's it going to be? Is this going to be, you're out of line here. What's it, what's it going to be? Well, how much more if the, the boss of the whole universe says, Ian, I want a word with you. Steve, I want a word with you. And the word is a word that sustains the weary. God doesn't speak to put us down. By the way, my boss didn't do that either, but God doesn't speak to crush us, but speaks words of life to build us up. Just as he spoke and creation flourished, he speaks to us with a word that sustains the weary. Actually, that's, that's what we minister week by week, isn't it? It's not, oh no, I have to hear another Bible talk. See, this, this is the words we need. God's word to sustain the weary. And as we celebrate the well-instructed tongue of Christ, as we celebrate his gracious and careful words, can we also seek to model in our speech both both how we preach God's word, how we minister God's word. Do we do it in a way that models the gentleness of Christ? But also how we speak about people. We have a saviour with a well-instructed tongue. And I think Paul would say, Timothy, if you're going to minister in Christ's name, let your speech be like his as, as much as you can. Let's just, we'll have a few moments where we might pause and just t- take a moment. I realise there's kids around, so don't worry if there's noise, don't worry if you're, if you're sort of wrangling little ones. But we'll just take maybe 30 seconds or so just to, just to ponder Christ's speech, our speech, maybe, maybe some things we want to bring to the Lord about how we use our words. And then we'll move on. So just a moment's quiet as we're able. Okay, let's, let's look on. Timothy's encouraged to pay attention to his speech, also his, his conduct. And conduct here, it's, it's, it's a word, it's not just about sort of bits of behaviour, but it's a kind of way of life type word. It's your whole pattern, your habits, your, what does your life as a whole look like? And Timothy's told to pay attention to that. And I guess we know from the, from the qualifications for elders and deacons that we can't separate how we live from what we teach. And I guess we know that, but I, I just reflect how countercultural that is. As there is the need for, you know, this false teaching thing, or we need people to teach true doctrine, there's, there's just huge need around the country. We need more workers for the harvest field. Who do we look to? Who do we seek to train up? And it would be so easy just to think, right, who are the natural leaders? Who are the natural communicators? Who are the people who, who people are already following? Those are the ones we're going to look to. But just as, as we reflect, if you, if you know, look through the Old Testament and think, well, who are some of the natural leaders that everyone wants to follow? Well, Saul would be a pretty good example, wouldn't he? Foot taller than everyone else, handsome, confident. David? No, not so much. Humanly speaking, you wouldn't choose David, but we know, of course, God looks on the heart. And... 
we know this, but I just need to remind myself, actually, character is far more important than gifting. We can, we can grow in, in gifting, but as we're looking to, to be about God's mission, we need to do it in God's way. And, and our way of life is vital in this. Not, not just what gifts do we have, but what sort of person are we? What sort of person are we becoming? And so an encouragement to us all, those of us in ministry, but and myself, yes, let's seek to grow in, in all sorts of areas, but let's not neglect our own walk with the Lord, our own character, because there can't be gospel outcomes without gospel character. Oh, by the way, there'll be fruit. It's interesting, there'll be fruit, there'll be growth, but... The Bible speaks about good and bad fruit. Yeah, sure, you might gather a crowd. You might, you might create a successful ministry. But will it be good fruit? And God says our conduct, our way of life. We apply it to ourselves, but also those we, those we minister. And, it, and isn't that Jesus? Isn't that Jesus? That actually, his way of life. You, you, you couldn't sort of pe peel back the layers and eventually get to a selfish core. You couldn't peel back the layers and go, actually, you know, to be honest, I've been with Jesus in private. I've seen how, you know, of an evening when he's exhausted um, and when the servants come into the house, how he treats them. No, no, through and through, his way of life was entirely consistent. And so as we have this beautifully consistent saviour, can we seek to grow to grow in that, to, to seek to be Christ-like, trusting that fruit is in the Lord's hands, actually. If we pursue godliness, fruit is in the Lord's hands. All we can attend to is, is, our, own, is our own walk, and you know, in a sense, it's quite a limited thing, but actually, as we face gospel need, false teaching, all the rest of it, we can't say the end justifies the means. We'll do anything we can to... To combat this and think my own godliness well I haven't quite got time for that given the pressures given the needs given the demands of church and the next two are quite interesting because Paul's spoken of conduct and we might think of okay is this about specific sins that need to be put to death but it's not so much about behavior next you notice love and faith it's our spiritual life it's not just try not to sin too much, but are, do we have a vibrant relationship with the Lord? Paul would say, Timothy, you can cultivate that. Your walk with the Lord is going to be the thing from which everything else flows. You're a disciple, Timothy, before you're a minister. And love, isn't that a wonderful thing for Paul to commend? Love. I've said this a, a number of times to students in Crosslands and elsewhere. Just, just think, maybe people who've ministered to you, have you heard them express love for God, love for Jesus? Maybe think of people to whom you minister. Would, would, would they say, you know, whatever else I know about this person, they really love Jesus. It's quite interesting, as, as I ponder that, I can think of ministries I've been part of where I don't think I've ever heard love for Jesus expressed. That's not to say, please hear me, that's not to say 
people didn't love Jesus. But isn't that interesting? You can be in a ministry for a long time and not hear someone say, I love Jesus. Not, not model that. And I think here Paul's saying it's, we, we need to love Jesus, but also we need to set an example in this. Maybe for some of us culturally, we feel a bit awkward about that. Standing firm for the gospel, that's a bit, that feels more culturally easy to sort of say to everyone. Actually saying, I love Jesus and here's why. Maybe that feels a bit vulnerable. Paul's saying set an example in love. Love for God, love for, love for one another, of course. But maybe just, just have a ponder. Maybe think to next year's families retreat at Medhurst and think, in the year that's just gone past, might the people I've ministered to, might they say, tell you what, yeah, Robin's really, really modelled a love for Jesus this year. Wouldn't that be something to aspire to? Wouldn't, wouldn't actually growing in our love for Jesus be something to aspire to, even as we are about all the busyness of ministry? Interestingly, I hadn't thought of this until now. Of course, it's the church in Ephesus in Revelation. You've neglected your first love. And so we as ministers, how, how are the congregation going to be lovers of Christ if we model that? And isn't that what Jesus is like? He, I don't know if this is right. Someone correct me theologically. It feels like Jesus was a lover before he was a doer. Jesus was a lover before he was a doer. You know, in the, in the glorious relationship, Father, Son and Spirit, love characterizes who God is. Even before the creation of the world, Jesus loved. And just, just to sort of recognise that, that in a culture that can be busy, 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 pursuing love is a vital thing, is a glorious thing. Maybe just a, a, a moment to reflect on Christ's love for us, astonishing love for us, and, and think maybe what, what might it look like to pursue love for Christ, even in the business of ministry? What could we do? What would help us? What would help you grow in love for Christ? What would help those in your congregation grow in love for Christ in the months ahead? Just, just a moment to reflect before we think of the last two. Okay, well, I hope these are things we can reflect on as we, as we go from here. And remember, I hope reflecting on Christ as exemplifying these things and not of the burden to have to do these, but the opportunity to grow in Christ's likeness by pursuing them. Faith. Set an example in faith. Faith. I mean, faith is trusting God, isn't it? It's believing that God can do what he promises. And actually, Jesus, when he lived on earth, was such an example of this for us. We haven't got too long because time's moving on, but let me just read that famous passage that Jesus spoke about worry and faith in Matthew chapter 6. But let me, let me read this as exemplifying Jesus himself, the do not worry passage, because actually Jesus perfectly lived out his own teaching. So we can, we can hear this as a description of him and maybe aspire to be more like him in this. Matthew 6, 25. Therefore, I tell you, Jesus did not worry about his life, what he would eat or drink. Or his body, what he would wear. He knew life was more than food and the body more than clothes. He looked at the birds of the air. He saw they don't sow or reap or store away in barns. <clears throat> and yet, 
our Heavenly Father feeds them. He knew that we are much more valuable than the birds. He knew that none of us, by worrying, can add a single hour to our life. Jesus didn't worry about clothes. He saw how the flowers of the field grow, they don't labour or spin. Yet even Solomon in his splendour was not dressed like one of these. Jesus knew that if that how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, how much more will he clothe us? Jesus didn't worry saying, what shall I eat? What shall I drink? What shall I wear? The pagans run after these things. And our heavenly father knows we need him. We need them. Jesus sought first God's kingdom and his righteousness, knowing all these things would be added to him as well. Jesus didn't worry about tomorrow. He let tomorrow worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. If we're Christians, we have the same father that Christ had. We can actually have the same confidence that Christ had. How did Christ live the life he did? He knew his father was in control, and so he trusted him. And he says to us, you now have that father through my finished work. Won't you trust him like I did? Won't you entrust yourself to him as I did? And can we model that to those to whom we minister? Model whatever else we might do, whatever else we might achieve or not achieve, the fact that we... We trust God. And perhaps those who minister to us might see that. Sorry, those to whom we minister might see that as well. Speech, our conduct, love and faith, that spiritual life, and finally our our purity. And we haven't got time, time to spend too long here. But again, isn't Jesus the example? Jesus came not to be served, but to serve. Ministry wasn't an opportunity to use others for his own ends, whether romantic, sexual misconduct with them, whether enjoying the power he wields over them, even the whole kind of wanting them to be a victim so he can come in and be their saviour and kind of sort of actually not wanting them to have agency of their own. And maybe we find that danger. We quite like it if people stay in distress because maybe secretly we like them being dependent on us. No, Jesus' motives were not... How can this person bolster my confidence, bolster my self-esteem? When we minister, I need to be careful of this. I guess we all do. Can we minister in a way that says, I'm doing this for you, not because I need this ministry to feel good about myself. Can as as best we can, can our motives be those of Christ, seeking to be pure, to minister in an other person centered way? we've been hearing about yesterday and in fact all the days all the days we've been here it's a it's a high calling but i think this isn't supposed to be a burdensome one rather it is paul saying jesus uh, saying timothy won't you seek to be christ-like in your speech in your conduct in your love in your faith in your purity We'll stumble, we'll fall, we need God's help. But this might be something we aspire to, knowing that with God's help, this is something we can grow in. Knowing that in all things we look to the example of Christ. Though he was rich, 
yet for our sakes became poor, so that we through his poverty might become rich. Let me pray as we close.